Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason. And me Bex. And welcome to episode 15, all about the girl who was deaf. Yes. Before we get into it, we'd like to really thank everyone who dropped us a line to say how much they enjoyed the Ian Rackoff interview that we put out quite recently. Um, we had a great time putting the episode together as well, so it's really lovely to know that people have enjoyed hearing from Ian and, and all about his incredible career. Yeah, and also a big thanks to everyone who uh, said hello to us from Seattle during the Eternal Village event. Uh, it was really fun to take part. We were in a sort of a kind of a roundtable panel discussion thing with Rick Davey of the Unmutual and Carl, who was organising the event. And uh, we had a great discussion about uh, the role of the sort of general fan community in keeping the prisoner alive. Yes, the whole experience was very prisoner-esque because everyone there could see us up on the big screen, but we couldn't see any of them, <laughs> but we could hear them. So uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a truly villagey experience, but we had a, a really great time and we're really grateful to Carl for inviting us. Yeah, and thank you to all the new listeners who have joined along as a result of that as well. It's really great that you've managed to find us and you can actually go back and we have episodes going back, not just to episode one of The Prisoner, but we have 50th anniversary episodes that we put out last year, which include interviews with various people involved in writing books, being behind the scenes or being involved in new adaptations of work related to The Prisoner. So we have loads of stuff available. Um, you can subscribe to our main feed, which is Time for Cakes and Ale. And on that, you'll get access to all of our episodes. And the ones marked the tally-ho are all about the prisoner. Yes. And today's episode is going to be all about the girl who was deaf. Uh, coming up is going to be our discussion about the episode. After that, we've got a chat with Rob Fairclough, who is the author of The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series. And also the curator of the script books that were put out some years ago. Yes, yeah, so Rob is incredibly knowledgeable about the show and as you'll find out in the interview, The Girl Who Was Death was actually the very first episode of The Prisoner he ever saw. So uh, we had a great time chatting to him and that talk is going to be coming up later in the episode. And after that we'll have a roundup of news from the world of The Prisoner from Rick Davey of the Unmutual website. Yes, but for now, let's crack on with our discussion of The Girl Who Was Deaf. Is he, Potter? It's our former Siberia. What was the colonel up to? Dr. Snips, crazy scientist. For the last 26 years, he's been building a super rocket to destroy London. Where? Well, that's just what the colonel was about to find out. Excuse me. Ridiculous. So The Girl Who Was Deaf was the 16th episode in the production of The Prisoner. So it was filmed in that second short production block, uh, very late on in the making of the show. It was written by Terence Feely, who also wrote the wonderful episode The Schizoid Man. And the idea for the episode, uh, I believe, came from David Tomlin, although there are pretty substantial differences between the original script, which had at one point been intended to be a 90-minute feature-length episode, mm. and what we actually see on the screen. And it was directed by David Tomlin himself. Yeah, and uh, to add to that, it was also a script that was repurposed uh, to some extent from McGowan's previous show, Danger Man, as well. So I think that could be an element of why this feels like a very, well, spy-heavy episode <laughs> of The Prisoner. Um, although it doesn't decide to stay within that world in a 
in a very serious fashion. It kind of aims to be more of a pastiche of the whole genre. And I think the most notable thing about watching it is that it doesn't feel as much like an episode of The Prisoner as other ones, but it does have elements which make you think a little bit about uh, The Avengers, shows like Mission Impossible, Get Smart, all those kind of 60s spy-fi series that were taking off at the time. Yeah, it's the only episode of The Prisoner that is really overly comedic mm-hmm. in nature. Um, and it, I think it works doing it as a one-off thing in the show. It, it shows that they could do comedy as well as, the, you know, so many of their episodes that are very, very serious. It does feel like a bit of a caper in the vein of something like The Avengers that always had its sort of comic heart on its sleeve. I'm sure we'll point this out as we're going through, but there are loads of nods to the way that genre was presented on TV. And also, to some extent, there are nods to the Bond franchise that was that was taking off at the time as mm. well. Um, and there's obviously a history between uh, Magoon and the Bond franchise. Uh, he turned down uh, the role of uh, James Bond. And I think it's interesting that there are elements of the episode that sort of deliberately fly in the face of uh, of some of the tropes that were already established quite early on in the Bond franchise. Yes, so the main guest cast for this episode, uh, we've got Kenneth Griffith playing both Schnipps and Number Two. Uh, Strangely, Kenneth had previously played the real Napoleon in a production of War and Peace. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that had anything to do with him ending up being Napoleon in this, because in script it wasn't really Napoleon. But uh, yeah, that, that was probably what he was best known for at that time. And Sonia, the eponymous girl who was deaf herself, is played by Justine Lord, who had been in quite a lot of shows in the 1960s. I think she'd been in The Saint a few times. She was in a show called The Troubleshooters, which I'm not that familiar with, actually. And, of course, we've got Christopher Benjamin, who you might recognise from a couple of previous episodes of The Prisoner. Yes, he was in Arrival. Uh, I think he was somebody present at the Labour Exchange. And also he was number 23 in The Chimes of Big Ben as well. Yeah, so you remember an arrival when number six goes to the Labour Exchange and there's that elaborate wooden kind of uh, toy on the <laughs> table and there's a guy asking him about his life and asking if he has any politics and he knocks it over. I think that was him. But, of course, he was also in the cast of Danger Man, which is just one of many what seem to be sort of knowing winks to the Danger Man mythology because in this episode of The Prisoner... His character's name is Potter, which is the name of his character in Danger Man. <laughs> so, yeah, for all the moments where there's always this debate about whether number six is John Drake, etc., uh, this episode is playing with that a little bit by having Benjamin return to the show, but actually be given a name, uh, not a number this time, and he's given the name of a character that he used to play in Danger Man. And the episode features a tremendous amount of uh, back projection work. Um, there's a scene later on we'll talk about where they actually play with the whole idea of of using back projection. <laughs> there's lots of work with doubles, um, which then necessitates uh, the use of quite elaborate disguises for number six, <laughs> um, probably to hide the fact that it's uh, Frank Mayer in a lot of the scenes probably uh, doing a lot of the work, mainly because McGowan, I believe, was a way for more shooting on Ice Station Zebra, which obviously yeah. disrupted... Um, a lot of the shooting in the early part of this second production block. Um, So when he's away um, finishing off the filming, they obviously carry on making The Prisoner in the second block. 
but his availability was quite limited. So he does, I think, you know, a lot of work where he's uh, shooting in front of uh, um, a back projection to kind of slot himself into the episode. So we have our usual opening credits, although this time the voice of number two who answers him in the back and forth, it definitely doesn't seem to be Kenneth Griffith. No, I think it's it's a it's a return to Robert Rietti. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know if that was a, a deliberate choice in in the same way as for many Happy Returns when they wanted to disguise the identity of the number two mm. for the episode until the very end. Um, but but certainly it doesn't it doesn't sound like him. And then we see a, a, a very strange framing device that we get for the whole story, which is a children's picture book, and it's open on a page. That looks like it's a, a, a series of figures all dressed in sort of traditional national outfits from around the world. So this is setting up the episode as obviously an unusually structured one, as we've experienced in the last couple. I suppose it's unusual that it's placed back to back with Living in Harmony, another episode which is based around number six or, or a character based on number six being out of the village and doing uh, something else. In this case... It's it's interesting that they use this picture, which in some respects is representative of the village itself, because mm. it's, you know, a lot of people uh, all together from all over the world, which is kind of what the village is meant to be as yeah. well. Yes. And of course, the village has its almost its own national dress, which yes. is the the cloaks and the coats and scarves of the village itself. Yeah. And we see a hand turn the page on this image. We well. We can guess who it is, but we don't know uh, exactly what's going on at this point. Yes, the hand turns the page and it reveals a picture of a quaint English village green. I suppose it's a a very stereotypical image as well. It's, you know, the sun's out, lots of people playing cricket. There's thatched cottages in the background, cricketers all in whites. It's all, yeah, it's one of those... It's one of those images which you could almost see on the side of a biscuit tin or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a chocolate box idea of an England that sort of never really existed but it's a romanticized ideal i suppose the kind of thing that you would get at the beginning of an episode of midsummer murders you know <laughs> uh, and then that picture shifts into a real cricket match going on on a real village green in a real quaint english <laughs> place in the countryside yeah so we're actually seemingly entering the story which is being uh, related yeah so the guy who's at the wicket at that point, who uh, seems to be doing really well because he's in the 90s in score. I, I'm, I'm never entirely sure what to make of this because Potter is the guy who's keeping score and he's looking at the crowd as if they're actually on the lookout for someone who might turn up. The guy who's at the wicket that we will find out later is the colonel who was clearly working for I don't know the intelligence services <laughs> in some way. But quite why they were at the cricket match to begin with, or why that was going to lead them in, I'm probably thinking about it too much. <laughs> it, none of this episode makes sense if you think about it too much, so I'm just going to stop there. But the whole conceit about it is actually to engineer very strange circumstances throughout it. It's all based around, I suppose, the idea that this is a, you know, this is a story that's being told. So lots of things happen that are seemingly silly coincidences there are moments where you think that would never happen that person would never do this that doesn't make any sense but in the context of this episode actually being a story which is being related to somebody not to give away the ending um (laughs) it's interesting that they 
you know, it can be quite jarring to see a lot of those things happening whilst you're watching. It takes a while for you to kind of get drawn into uh, the world of this episode. Yeah, I suppose if, if you were trying to make up a story to go along with the images in a picture book and the first image was this, you might start with a cricket match, then something dramatic happens <laughs> and then you go from there. So the guy at the wicket, the man with the very impressive moustache, hits a six, which is where you hit the ball outside the boundary. And while Potter is busy putting 99 up on the scoreboard and one of the fielders goes off to chase the ball, some mysterious figure replaces the ball with an identical looking one. Yeah, and this uh, woman dressed all in white is a woman who we've seen Potter. At one point, he's he's looking in the crowd of the cricket match a few seconds earlier and he sees her sitting down in a chair sort of watching everything along with all the other spectators. But it's uh, it's telling that it's her white gloved hand which is there to replace the cricket ball. And then the ball gets returned to the bowler uh, and the bowler is played by an actor who's actually called John Drake. <laughs> I don't know if he was hired specifically for that purpose, but I like to think he was. Uh, and when the ball is bowled to the colonel again, as soon as he hits it with his bat, it explodes and kills him. And everyone's very shocked. Yes, <laughs> as you would be. <laughs> so then we cut to a newspaper headline, which reads, Colonel Hawk English murdered a cricket match, one short of his century. <laughs> I love the fact that one of the most important things about this is that he was only one of his century. <laughs> <laughs> and then number six appears, this time looking a lot like John Drake. Now, he's he's in the city. He's you know This has nothing to do with the village. He's walking around kind of a bit incognito with a, you know, with a hat on, a trench coat. And he's uh, walking down a high street where he goes to see a shoeshiner who he addresses as Potter. And this is obviously the same guy who was scoring the cricket match earlier. Yeah, and Potter's role in this seems to be that of Basil Exposition, (laughs) and that he explains to number six and the audience exactly what the story is of this spy caper. So he explains that the colonel was looking for this guy named Schnipps, who's a mad scientist who was building a rocket intending to destroy London. Uh, And now, basically, number six is character or Mr X as he gets called at one point in the story uh, has to go and follow the clues. Yeah and I think in the in the first of these references to uh, the Bond franchise both in film and in uh, book form as well uh, this kind of directly relates to Moonraker in the novel because I think the plot of that is that it involves an ex-Nazi who plans to fire a rocket at London. Mm. Um, So although it's it's a Napoleon wannabe um, in this one. I think originally the script did call for Kenneth Griffiths to actually be a Nazi, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it would have actually been really close to that original uh, conceit. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that Potter has all these ridiculous gadgets. Hmm. Like in his shoeshine stand, there's a, there's a light that indicates that there's a call coming through and he picks up a brush and it's really a hidden phone inside. Yeah, which I think is a is a reference to Get Smart, which would have been airing probably a little bit before The Prisoner. Mm. I'm not sure it was on in the UK at that time. So I'm not sure what you know how close the air dates were, but um, I think shoe phones were kind of common in that. It's what Agent eighty six used, Maxwell Smart, or whatever. <laughs> um, so again, you know, they throw a lot of these pastiches in about the uh, about the world of spies on um, on television and film, and throw it into this mix, and and again use it a lot for humour in the episode. Yeah, there are a lot of jokes in this one. When 
Potter sends number six to the record shop uh, to go and get his next instructions. He he says that the whole thing with the colonel and the bomb was so damn unsporting. And number six replies, but it certainly wasn't cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, number six walks toward, well, he, he kind of carries on walking down the road. Um, the shop that he first passes when we see in the establishing shot of Potter, and that's actually a shop called Lady M, which I don't know if it's going too far, but that that could very well be a reference to a to M in the Bond franchise as well. Mm. But when we see um, Sonia, the girl who was deaf, in the shop window, there's something about the character that that to me really reminds me of something that we've been only watching very recently, which is a show called The Corridor People. And one of the main characters in the Corridor People is a sort of femme fatale villain character called Siri Van Epp, <laughs> who is a, a sort of similarly uh, deadly, glamorous, blonde character who uh, is completely in control of every situation that mm. she goes into. So a, a wonderful character. And there are parallels here for me, between her and Sonia, who we now see has replaced one of the mannequins in the clothes shop and is watching this whole thing unfold. And just as that sort of continues, we cut back very briefly to Potter, who's obviously, you know, incognito doing the shoeshine role, waiting for number six to appear. But whilst he's sitting there sort of putting his stuff together, it's really funny, there's a, a really big muddy boot that comes into shot and he realises he's going to have to clean that as well. <laughs> oh, the life of a spy. <laughs> Mission, find and destroy Professor Schnipp's rocket. There's very little help I can give you, I'm afraid. Uh, the opposition have been one step ahead of us all along. Thank you very much. What was that? Nothing. Standard disguise. Take over where the colonel left off. So, number six goes to the record shop. He was sent to by Potter. This has a bit of an echo of Hammer and Anvil, where he pretends to be receiving a coded message by playing records in the village shop. But in this one, he's getting a specific message from a very specific record. Yeah, and I think this has sort of strong echoes of, uh, of Mission Impossible, where mm. you know they, they used to use, um, well, initially records, and then uh, later like a tape recorder to uh, uh, give messages to the team. Um, and also, I suppose later on in the 70s, you would have had a similar thing happening with Charlie giving messages to Charlie's Angels as well. <laughs> So it's a common trope that existed before and existed afterwards, but they kind of throw everything into this episode and it kind of sort of has all these different elements. Certainly, I think one thing I do wonder about moving away from the idea that this is a pastiche of of spy things is that although they've never really discussed and addressed the you know the direct issue of what uh, number six was before he came to the village, if he is relating this story, you do wonder whether elements of it are based on his life beforehand and if he was actually a spy and if he did actually do similar kinds of things which is why he, you know he knows that well certainly other episodes like hammer into anvil he's done things which suggest he knew the you know the way that spies did things and this episode really plays in that because it he could be essentially relating a story where he's embellishing it with with details that come from his own previous experience what I like is the fact that the record seems to answer him back when he makes a comment <laughs> about how unhelpful it's been. <laughs> Which, assuming this isn't a blink situation, yeah, it's yeah. probably not something that should be happening. <laughs> so having uh, received the message from his higher-ups about exactly what's going on, what may have happened to the colonel, and more details on Schnipp's plan, 
Six then immediately is found in kind of full full cricket white and also some incredible mutton chop sideburns and a big <laughs> moustache as he has taken the colonel's place at uh, the cricket match. So this is the next day, although clearly it looks like it was just shot at the same time. And we see exactly the same events happening again. This time, number six again hits a six. Uh-huh, see, uh, <laughs> And uh, when the ball lands roughly in, in the shrub outside the boundaries, we see uh, the ball being switched again, just as it was the first time, again by Sonia, the girl who was there. Only this time, number six is wise to what's going to happen. So when the bowler bowls it at him, instead of hitting it, he catches it in his hand and then throws it away so that it explodes away from everybody. Which lands and then explodes, creating absolute panic in the waiting audience who are probably there just to see a cricket match. Yes, but when he goes to the site of the explosion... Uh, Sonia has left a handkerchief behind with the message, let's meet again at your local pub, written on it. Yeah, written in, what, red lipstick or something? Looks like yeah. it, yeah. So he uh, goes into the pub, uh, he gets his usual, which is a pint of beer. So so this is somewhere where, at least in the context of the story, you know, he does come here quite a lot. When he goes to the barmaid and receives uh, the beer, he puts his coat down, etc., there would be nothing there to make him suspect anything was wrong. But then this is one of those really cool bits in The Prisoner that I remember long after the episode is uh, is gone. I don't know if it's actually been used somewhere else, but as he starts uh, drinking his pint and occasionally looking down to see the bottom of the glass, which is revealed as he's drinking more and more, um, a message becomes clear, which curiously is written in village font mm-hmm. as well, which reads, you have just been poisoned. Mm. Yeah, the use of village font here is a bit of a giveaway that all is not as it seems with the story, because... Schnips and Sonia wouldn't otherwise have anything to do with the village. In fact, this entire story wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with the village. And yet it's written in a village font on the bottom of the glass. And when the barmaid asks, same again, sir, he replies, one of those is quite enough. (laughs) (laughs) So his solution to this is to immediately drink several other drinks uh, in order to try and make himself throw up. And uh, in true... Chumbawamba style, he drinks a brandy drink, he drinks a whiskey drink, he drinks a vodka drink, he drinks a jambouille drink, he drinks a tea and maria drink, he drinks a Cointreau drink, he drinks a Grand Marnier drink. He doesn't quite scam the song, but, you know, still a party. (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool, this bit, because each drink gets lined up one after another, and he downs every one. And uh, as he's going through them, again, looking quite peaky whilst whilst it's happening, which is clearly the point as well. Uh, the barmaid warns him that he'll be sick. And uh, at the end of it, he has this look on his face where he does capture that look of somebody who's who's had a bit too much. Um, <laughs> and he knows what's going to happen next. Uh, so he goes off to throw up in one of the bathrooms. And in a lovely moment, as he kind of walks through the door, we see exiting uh, the bathrooms, Sonia, who's leaving at the same time. What's nice here is that this is one of those moments where it's clear that he doesn't know exactly who he's meant to be looking for. No one at the moment is aware of anyone outside of Schnips who is involved in, in the plan that Schnips has. So all these times we've seen uh, the character who we later learn is, is Sonia in the end credits only. She's kind of always there in the background. But the fact is she always sticks out like a sore thumb. She's always better dressed than everyone. She's dressed all in white to stand out. And yet she's walking past characters She's uh, interacting with lots of the events, but no one realises this. And he's so obviously concerned with the fact he's going to throw up, he doesn't realise that she's just walking past him. 
Yeah, I want to know how she manages to change outfit that often. Where is she keeping all of her clothes? Are they all in the boot of her car? (laughs) (laughs) This is what's implausible to me. After she leaves in the bathroom, uh, number six sees written on one of those pull-down towel dispenser Mm. things. The message, upset tummy, try Benny's Turkish baths around the corner. Yeah, and unlike the previous message, which she would have cobbled together by writing in lipstick on a handkerchief, this one looks like it's actually been printed on the roll. Yeah. (laughs) Which uh, shows how how elaborate their schemes are. (laughs) This is also one of those moments, I mean, going back to this whole scene, which speaks to the idea that this is using storybook logic as well. Because there's no way, really, that if this is the regular pub that he goes to, the barmaid could have ever been convinced to serve him from a pint that would have been, you know, um, that would have been poisoned, so, you know, handed to, to her by um, the girl who was deaf. At the same time, there are all these wonderful moments that look really good in the story, but obviously don't really have have much uh, logic to them. So how does Sonia get the right glass, you could ask, into circulation in the bar so that he gets the one that says you have just been poisoned? You know, there's all these moments where, as the episode goes on, you realise that they can get away with all these things because they are deliberately exploiting the logic of it being a story where certain things have to happen for certain reasons. And I think it's interesting that they choose to actually play with that whole structure throughout it because it becomes more and more crazy as the episode goes on. It's all based around the idea that you can do anything in a storybook in order to drive things forward. And this just gets more and more outlandish. And so although it's strange for the episode of The Prisoner, that's basically what a lot of these spy shows, you know, TV and film, were doing at the time. You know, they they require a huge amount of suspension of disbelief to, you know, to get these stories out. And in this episode, I mean, it's just playing with that as well. Same again, sir? Oh, thank you. One of those is quite enough. Yeah, so... Number six follows the clue to Benny's Turkish baths around the corner. And we see him in one of those steam boxes, having a nice steam, and climbing out of another steam box in the same room comes Sonia, who promptly locks him inside by putting a broom handle through the handles of the door and a weird kind of plastic goldfish bowl over his head, like a spaceman. She does come prepared for these things. (laughs) Yeah, and this is, again, another Bond reference. This... Uh, is direct homage to uh, a scene from Thunderball that would have come out, what, two, three years prior to this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, So number six escapes by basically kicking at the door until the uh, broom handle breaks and he climbs out. But brilliantly, he climbs out in full Sherlock Holmes outfit. (laughs) Like he was sitting in there the whole time, wearing about ten layers of unnecessary Victorian clothing. (laughs) He goes to see if he can catch up with her, but she's already gone. And then she fight, and then he finds that on the door of the uh, steam box that she came out of is once again what looks like written in lipstick. Go to Barney's boxing booth, front row. P.S. Who would be a goldfish? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I-, I like the fact that this is the first of a few things in this episode that come in threes because. In fairy tales, and to an extent this is kind of a a fairy tale yarn being spun, things always come in threes. Mm. There are always three stages to a part of an adventure or three clues that go somewhere. 
And in this story, you've got three messages that left for him that he has to follow. The message on the handkerchief telling him to go to the pub, the message on the hand towel telling him to go to the steam bath, and then now the message on the door telling him to go to the boxing booth at the fairground. So it's the classic fairy tale trope of three. So we next see uh, number six in full Sherlock Holmes garb, although <laughs> as we uh, discussed earlier, it's... Uh, it's probably Frank Mayer in, in almost all of these scenes, uh, with the exception of a few close-up shot against uh, Green's Green. So he's wandering around this uh, fun fair, and he goes to Barney's boxing booth. There he's looking around a little bit, but then he goes to sit down in the front row, as the message said previously. And then at that point, uh, as the announcer is talking, number six gets pulled from the front row to go three rounds with a boxer known as The Killer. Gentlemen, on the other hand, I want for a gallant and courageous opponent who has undertaken to go three rounds with the killer. A man of mystery in the front row, Miss Jolly! Yeah, so the, the announcer basically starts saying how there's, you know, a, a brave, anonymous gentleman in the front row who has uh, agreed to go three rounds with the killer. And uh, immediately people jump up and start ushering number six up to the boxing ring, um, removing his Sherlock Holmes cloak and getting him ready to uh, have a fight. Yeah, and I think he's actually referred to as Mr. X here, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So again, even in this world, they never reveal his uh, uh, his real name. But uh, he's just uh, about to be called up into this boxing match. And whilst he's seated in the uh, in the corner of the ring, an old woman comes up to him and wishes him luck. A woman who uh, we know is actually the character of Sonia in disguise. Yes, and there's another quick change from her in this in this scene. So I, I really want to know how she's doing that. But uh, the, the whole presence of a, a boxing match in this, um, it, it could be another in-joke to McGuin himself, who was a very good amateur boxer when he was young. And we also know that number six himself is a very good boxer because that features in uh, Terence Feely's other script, The Schizoid Man. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And returning to the motif of uh, these pages of a storybook, we then see uh, another page. This involves uh, the shot of a boxing ring with two men boxing in it. So they start fighting. The killer was obviously not expecting so much resistance to come from this random <laughs> Mr. X being pulled out from the audience. And at one point he says, take it easy, will you? My face is my fortune and you might knock it back into shape. <laughs> and as they fight, we see at one point Sonia return to take her seat uh, to watch, but she's back wearing one of her very glamorous white outfits again. <laughs> so uh, the whole time number six or Mr. X is asking the boxer who, uh, who is fighting, you know, where he got the message from. And all he says, it was just a woman who was there earlier. He's now beginning to get a sense of these things, but they're having this funny conversation where he's trying to get information whilst in this boxing match. But all he ends up finding out is that he needs to go to the Tunnel of Love to kind of get the next uh, the next clue that will sort of lead him further towards uh, Sonia, the girl who was deaf. On the ride, we see number six, still in her Sherlock Holmes outfit, um, going through the Tunnel of Love, and we see Sonia is sort of hidden in plain sight um, amongst all of the decorations and masks and things on the walls, watching him as he goes by. Yeah, just as she was like a mannequin in that shop window earlier. Yeah, and then it seems at first like she's following him in the boat because he can hear her voice behind him. And she says to him, 
uh, that she's been looking for a worthy opponent <laughs> and that he has passed the first of her tests and she will see him again. But when he turns around to look, uh, she isn't actually there. It's a radio that's been relaying her message and he picks it up and throws it into the water just before it explodes. So she does like booby trapping everyday objects with bombs. <laughs> it's one thing that we've learned from the situation. And that may become important a bit later on. Yes. But the, the whole sequence in the Tunnel of Love, um, the first thing it reminded me of was The Dark Knight Returns, you know, the Frank Miller um, graphic novel, mm. um, where you have the big showdown between Batman and the Joker in the Tunnel of Love, although significantly more violent than this one. But also uh, the bit in Strangers on a Train, where he, he follows her on the Tunnel of Love and then out to the, the island where he kills her. Yeah, it's a... It's a location which is used for a lot of these moments where the hero somehow comes across their adversary. Mm. Um, it's used a lot in in TV and film. Um, I'd ne- it's odd because it, like exactly the same thing. I I watched this and it reminds me of so many other scenes, but I don't know how many times it had been done before this. Um, I mean, there must be examples that sort of bridge the gap between Strangers on a Train and this. Mm. Um, but it might have just been the case that you know this was just. You know, picking up on that as a as an interesting scene that they could use again, mainly because they were back in the funfair. Yeah, I mean the the whole use of funfairs as places where slightly dark and violent confrontations happen is is almost a bit of an overused cliche in in film and TV these days. Yeah, but is that overused now? It's it's overused yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it was overused at the yeah. time. Um, I think this this is one of those really memorable examples of how how people use it. But now, um, you know, w- when I see it, I just think, oh, come on, another fun fair, really? Yeah, it's such a cliche. Yeah, they they keep doing it in those um, Marvel Netflix things, <laughs> which I find really annoying. They do it twice now. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> All my life I've been looking for a worthy opponent. You have passed my first little test brilliantly. You'll be hearing from me again. I'll be the same... So uh, number six, again, his Sherlock Holmes garb is uh, standing in front of a variety of uh, uh, matte background green screen work um, <laughs> being invoked a lot here, uh, where he's basically just looking out over the whole fanfare in various locations, trying to see if he can spot uh, the woman behind the voice that he heard in the Tunnel of Love. There's also like a creepy, like one of those dolls they have in those kiosks, which they keep coming to again, which is like a sailor or something. It's like a, it's like a, um, what are they called? Like those ventriloquist dummy kind of faces. It's like got this very garish red and white makeup on. It's quite, it's quite weird looking anyway. Um, and it can, you know, they, they keep cutting to it and it's always laughing and sort of creating this weird atmosphere as we see uh, uh, number six, you know, looking around trying to find out exactly uh, where Sonia is and actually often walking past her or not realising that he's much closer than he thinks to her. Yeah, so I, th- I think at first he gets into a, a water shoot ride <laughs> um, going after her, but it just ends up getting quite damp. Um, and then he thinks he spotted her on a carousel. Then he follows her to one of those... I- I've never seen a ride like this before. It's got a weird cover that keeps coming over and then back off again as the ride goes around. I don't even know what you would call that. I don't know, it looks like a like a distorted tyre or something, doesn't it? It's really weird. Yeah. Um, but all these people who are wandering around appear to be sort of doubles who are, dist- you know, who are 
uh, distracting him each time. It's never actually uh, Sonia that he's uh, getting close to each time. Yeah, and it's, it's a very village thing to have doppelgangers uh, <laughs> wandering around in the same clothes. He gets on a roller coaster because he thinks that he sees her on there. And you get interspersed with some quite dodgy back projection <laughs> um, effect of Patrick McGowan clambering over the seats of a fake roller coaster with uh, alternating with shots of what I presume is Frank Mayer actually climbing over the seats in a roller coaster while it's going. I mean, I don't know what the hell they, they were thinking, but it's terrifying to watch him do that. <laughs> I presume you wouldn't even be allowed to do that anymore, but it really looks like they were doing it when they were filming it. Yeah, well, they they have that. And then, although McGowan obviously wasn't doing those scenes, uh, we find that the person who he's uh, approaching on the roller coaster is a double of Sonia and also um, a photographer who is taking pictures of her as well, who's kind of in the in the front car as well. And that's actually Alexis Canner, who appeared as the kid in Living in Harmony and will appear later on in the series as well. It's a you know, it's an uncredited cameo here, but he is actually clearly standing there shouting in the face of the camera while standing up on a roller coaster, facing backwards as well. So he's He's, you know, he's pretty brave to do that. I don't know. Um, McGowan clearly got Frank Mayer to do most of this stuff. Um, he probably was. You know, he's actually probably back from filming Ice Station Zebra, and he was like, "I'm just not going to turn up for this." <laughs> I'm climbing over a roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite funny. He's like, oh, "I know your game, Sherlock Holmes. I'll knock your block off. I'll tear your arms off." Yeah, he, he plays this completely crazed photographer. Um, <laughs> it's just a very weird moment. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm not really sure how that fitted into um, like the production, whether this was a situation where he was like, I want Alexis Cannon to be in this episode, or or maybe Alexis Cannon was just hanging around um, <laughs> for some reason, and then he was just kind of put in this scene. I don't really know. Maybe he was at the fun fair. Maybe he was at the, at the fun fair. <laughs> and then the next time number six thinks he's seen Sonia, uh, it's by the carousel again, mm. and he approaches her, and then the photographer jumps off the carousel and uh, comes over to ward him off. So he leaves, but this time it really was Sonia behind the white veil that she was holding up. Mm. And I love the fact that Alexis Canna does such a memorable role actually here in them. And in this one, I think it's kind of nice because he was obviously completely silent as the kid. And here he's just screaming his head off as number six, which is almost like all the stuff he would have wanted to say to him in Living in Harmony. <laughs> so Sonia finally decides to take her leave. Um, she goes and clams in her car and drives off. Number six tries to catch her with the car, but ends up A, falling on the ground, and B, unfortunately knocking his own hat off, thus revealing that it very clearly is not Patrick (laughs) McGowan underneath the uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, disguise. Uh, But he uh, runs off, jumps in his own car, and follows her for the classic spy car chase. Yeah, and whilst he's chasing Sonia, you know, he's obviously got uh, his hands on the wheel, but occasionally he's uh, taking off his a disguise so he takes off his moustache he takes off his sideburns and things like that um and he kind of it's almost like he's slipping back to his uh sort of proper spy mode now that he's uh you know he's realized that he's found the person he's pursuing and he has to um it, well it, but it doesn't matter whether you know he's in disguise or not anymore yeah or, or rather that they've just finished all the location shooting and now <laughs> he, that was all going to be in the studio and it's Patrick McGowan again i'd like to believe there was a good reason why he did that <laughs> there was an in-story reason why that happened <laughs> So he's chasing her down the road and she's somehow broadcasting through his radio using a microphone that she's got in her car. 
uh, which is very clever. And then there's this wonderful bit where, so she's obviously in the car in front and she turns around and she's pointing at his car and sort of sort of swinging her arms or, or twirling her finger around a little bit. And as that's happening, well, in real terms, the back projection that's being shown behind her is rotating as well. But it's clearly having an effect on number six behind the wheel as well. He's kind of feeling his world spinning around as well, almost like what she's doing is able to um, sort of manipulate the reality that he's experiencing. And I, you know, I think this is just a play on the fact that they're using back projection so heavily as well. <laughs> it's also, I think, it's interesting they choose to do some of this because it's, you know, they like to play around, be quite inventive when they're doing these episodes. And I think it's quite, an, you know, it's quite a, a cool looking thing as well. It doesn't really make much sense just to have her twirling her arm and and the world literally spinning as well. But especially in light of what we've seen in the episode Living in Harmony, it's clear that there are things that the village is able to do involving sort of warping your perception, you know, introducing strange virtual realities as well. So although this isn't in the village itself, it's not unsurprising that number six would be relating a story which invokes not only his past experience, maybe his time as a spy before being in the village, but also infusing that with um, elements that he's experienced whilst he's been in there as well. So how things can be manipulated, even the recurrence of characters who we may have already seen in previous episodes. I mean, maybe that's why uh, in the story, the photographer is actually played by Alexis Canner because it's the character who he met as the kid in the previous episode. Yeah, and this bit also is reminiscent to me of A, B and C um, when he's in the the C stage mm. of that, uh, when he's sort of fighting off the drugs because he's, he's swapped most of the drugs out for, for something harmless. And, uh, and he takes hold of the mirror and straightens it and the whole camera mm. swings around like he's straightening his own perspective on it. Yeah, so uh, during the chase... She is still talking to the microphone, which I think is distracting him a little bit. And she basically turns off and uh, does sort of a, a little U-turn around a roundabout and doubles back on herself. Whereas number six overshoots and he has to stop his car and then turn back in order to carry on chasing her. Yeah, well, he she pulls in in front of what looks like a sort of roadside inn or something like that at the side of the road. And, and pulls back around in front of it in order to drive off in the other direction. Yeah, and during this bit as well, it's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, but it's something that Rick pointed out to us when we chatted to him uh, in an earlier episode where he was playing a game with us, which was Spot the TARDIS. And he said there was an an episode of The Prisoner that featured a TARDIS in it, and we had no idea what it was. And it's only on doing our proper rewatches of The Girl Who Was Death we realised that it's actually just in the sequence here. Um, As you see Sonia's car taking a corner being chased by uh, number six you see sort of on the grass verge there is a uh, blue police box there so <laughs> doctor who's tardis featuring in the background of the episode so something we'd never noticed before and i was really worried that we'd actually end up watching all the way through to fallout and we wouldn't see it and then we'd have to go <laughs> to rick and say yeah we didn't see it but i'm glad we saw it this time <laughs> yeah I-, I can imagine another parallel world where some crazed scientist who wants to fire a lighthouse rocket at London gets stopped by the doctor <laughs> and his companions instead, but that he uh, 
well, he or she <laughs> turned up now to uh, to fix it and found that actually number six was already taking care of it. <laughs> but what I also like about that shot, as she's turning around in front of the inn to go back again, not only do you see the TARDIS there, but in front of the inn there are two umbrellas and they're red and white stripy yeah, umbrellas. Yeah. They're very villagey umbrellas. I don't know if they would just happen to be there or if they went and put them there. Yeah, if it's unintentional, it still works in the context of the story. But it's a lovely little sort of like callback to to where this story is actually really rooted. So though it doesn't feel necessarily like a prisoner episode, there are these little motifs that uh, that are from the village that have sort of penetrated this world and feature quite a lot in it. Yeah, so he reverses back around in order to chase after her once again, and she turns down a road towards a village called Witchwood. And when Num Six pulls into Witchwood, it looks very much like a studio backlot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he gets out of his sports car and starts looking around. It's one of those moments where you know that this is, I mean, it, like it just looks almost like a repurposed set from some other TV show or something like that. But he mm. um, he wanders over, he sees um, Sonia's car, but Sonia obviously isn't around. And as he looks around in this town, he just looks at the uh, at the shop signs as well. And in keeping with the classic nursery rhyme, there is a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. <laughs> There's was it David Doe, the baker, Leonard Snuffit, the candlestick maker, mm-hmm. and Brendan Bull, the family butcher. Yeah. So again, you know that this isn't the real world. This is like all being told in the context of a story. But or it's when... just great nominative determinism on the part of those people and the careers they chose. <laughs> if they were that good at choosing careers, they wouldn't have, you know, built their uh, built their establishments on the studio backlog. <laughs> so as number six wanders around this strange, empty ghost town of the village, uh, he hears Sonia over the loudspeakers, and she tells him that her name is Death. I'm glad you came. This is to be our love, Tris. You may not see my face, but you may know my name. My name is Death. (laughs) Yeah, and we then cut back to uh, the picture book that we've seen at the beginning of the episode and there's a picture of this uh, this village that he's found himself in and it is indeed appropriately labelled in the bottom right-hand corner as the village. And she continues to speak to him as he walks around the village and at one point she says, I'm sorry my father isn't here to greet you but he's busy with his rocket. <laughs> so evidently we now know that she is Schnipser's daughter. Hmm. And then she says to him, that you are a born survivor and I am a born killer. Which is kind of one of those classic moments you would see in one of these shows or films where it just pits the hero against the antagonist in very clear terms. And it's almost like we've moved properly into the world of the village that we know. I mean, not only is it the village by name, but also the uh, the lines are very black and white here. Uh, we know who's good and who is bad. And I think it's it's evinced by that by that clear statement there. Yeah, well, it's the immovable object meeting the unstoppable force, mm. essentially. 
So the first place he enters is the butchers. And as he's about to go in, he actually looks up to uh, to a speaker just outside, which is where uh, Sonia's voice is coming from. And just like in the village, obviously, you have a female voice projecting all these instructions to people or information, at least uh, from speakers. This is very similar to what we've seen in the world of the of the village as well. So he heads into the butchers only to be greeted by a hail of machine gun fire, uh, which has been evidently set up with a motion trigger to shoot anything that moves. And again, if this is in some way a reflection of Six's life before he went to the village, he clearly knows what to do in these situations that are about to unfold. Um, what he does is he, uh, is he actually blocks the motion sensor to turn off the gun, but then he's actually capable pretty quickly of of dismantling that whole setup, taking the machine gun in his hands and uh, using it to sort of fire against uh, the wall, which is sort of between the butchers and the bakers. But the baker himself turns out to be a sack of flour with a balloon on top. (laughs) Aren't they all? (laughs) And this scene is actually in strong contrast to what we've observed in Living in Harmony, because that's a whole show about number six not wanting to pick up a gun. And here he... He moves into being that kind of Bond-like spy who actually is quite happy to wield a machine gun in this case and fire it freely, and he knows what he's doing with it. He, you know, so it's it's a different aspect of his character, and although it's one which is probably mythologized by being part of a of a storybook character, um, one does wonder if this is actually a, a real representation of what he was like before he came to the village in his in his job beforehand. So as he ventures into the baker's, a trap opens up in the floor underneath him and he only avoids falling into a massive slab of spikes <laughs> by uh, jamming the gun that he's carrying into the opening of the trapdoor. Uh, but as he tries to pull himself up, Sonia announces over the loudspeakers that the spikes are in fact electrified. So he's got to somehow get up out of the trapdoor before the spikes, which are now rising up to meet him. But he succeeds in doing this by grabbing hold of a uh, wooden box of some kind and pulling it down into the hole so that he can stand on it uh, and there'll be something that does not conduct electricity between him and the spikes. But what I also want to know is how come spikes appear to rise up the same distance several times over? (laughs) (laughs) It's also kind of an interesting take on what would have happened in these race against time scenes when the lead character in something is trapped in a situation, they can't get out of it, and some means of killing them is approaching them really quickly and they have to use their uh, ingenuity to get out of it. It's straight out of of uh, like a, any number of spy shows, I think, to have this scene in there. So it feels a bit out of place because it's not the way that you would think you would see things take place in the village, but it does reveal that kind of sneaky side that number six always has which is he knows how to think himself out of the situation it's just in this case you wouldn't really see him doing it using a gun that's kind of the main difference that we see between the six of the village and the six in the form of this uh, spy character here so sonia warns him that the rest of the floor of the bakers is mined and that all the mines going to go off in 90 <laughs> seconds so he gets out by grabbing hold of a hot water pipe that's running across the ceiling <laughs> and climbing his way into the candlestick makers. 
So here he meets a third set of uh, traps here. One of three. Good one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in this case, uh, Sonia announces over the radio that uh, these candles are all laced with cyanide and that uh, as they're burning, they're filling the room with cyanide and then the shutters come down, trapping him in the room. So it's filling up with obviously a poisonous gas and that if he tries to actually put out any of these candles, they will instantly explode. There's a nice scene where he goes up to one of the candles and tries to blow it out and he realises it will explode and then he kind of has to hold it in and and move his head away, Um, which I like a lot. He also uses a a sort of iron snuffer to Mm. snuff out a candle that's high up in the room and it blows up taking most of the snuffer with mm. it you know on one hand these are quite clever things to do you know you know, to test that with the candle snuffer and see if it works but it becomes kind of a slapstick thing when he then has this you know slightly perturbed look as he sees that the end of the snuffer has been blown away as well yeah, so it's just... deliberately quite you know quite silly as well when they're showing these things almost to show how all these things that they see so frequently in spy tv shows etc they're all a bit flaky, I think, and a bit hokey. Yeah, and what's left of the snuffer is just smouldering and smoking. It's almost cartoonish in that way. Mm. But he's not stupid. Uh, what he does is he uh, uses the fact that the candles are explosive to his advantage. So he gathers up um, a couple of candelabras and places them against uh, the exit. And then using that sort of arrangement, he's able to go to the other side of the room behind a desk and he finds a set of bellows, which from a distance he's able to uh, blow air at the candles, which then all are extinguished and they all explode. And the explosion is sufficient uh, to blow a hole in the door behind. And he's able to exit the candlestick makers. Yes, unfortunately, he exits right into gunfire. She has him covered with a machine gun from a position high up in what looks like some kind of tower. And he dives into the blacksmith's in order to take cover, where he finds a conveniently placed digger that he's able to drive out, giving himself some cover while he tries to basically slow motion drive this digger at her position. I'm not sure what he was planning to do when he got there, because he was going to have to get out of the digger sooner or later. And all the while, she's just hurling increasingly deadly forms of ammunition at him. She gives up on the gun. She tries a few grenades. When that doesn't work, she uh, just thinks, screw it, let's go for the rocket launcher and uh, promptly blows the digger to smithereens. And during Sonia's attack on uh, on number six in the digger, uh, she's still talking over the uh, over the PA system. And there she uh, she even makes an offer to number six to let him join them them being her and her father schnipps as well in their plan and this is one of those moments i think which is actually quite similar to uh to what the village do occasionally which is when they try and recruit him occasionally to join their plans as well so again we're getting those moments of the village which seep into the reality of of this story in terms of the motivations of the characters but of course he's not actually dead he's been hiding underground under a manhole cover uh (laughs) There always seems to be a manhole cover in an action sequence whenever you actually need one. That you could easily get into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So now believing him to be dead, she goes off and gets into her helicopter and he follows at a discreet distance before jumping on the frame of the helicopter at the last moment and going with her. Yeah, and then we cut again to a storybook page, this time with a picture of a, a prop plane flying over the sea or something. 
which is obviously different for the first time to what we're seeing because she's in a helicopter and there's a plane on the image. But I think it's just showing that, you know, this picture book that is being used to relate the story, it's, it's simply jumping off points, isn't it? For, mm. for the story that number six is, uh, is later revealed to be telling. Yeah. And of course, we all know that if you want to leave a village, you leave by helicopter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're quite sure you killed him? Father, who taught me? A girl after my own heart. Only our dear mother could see you now. Good old Josephine. Tell me again about her last cavalry charge. Not now, child. We have work to do. She lands somewhere by the coast and he jumps off the frame of the helicopter just before landing so that he can run off into the trees for cover and won't be seen. And then he follows her through to a mysterious passage in these rocks right by the coast. When he looks over the cliff into the sea, you can see a lighthouse out there. And it's actually the same lighthouse that we saw in Many Happy Returns. Yeah, and this is the the lighthouse in Beachy Head. Yes, yeah. (laughs) So he realises that she's gone through this hidden entrance into an elaborate cave system and starts to follow. Yeah, and and I think it was free-for-all where we've also seen cave systems in the village because I think it's in that episode where number six makes it to the area underneath the green dome and he sees those people who are worshipping Rover you know, sitting in deck chairs or something with funny sunglasses on. Mm. Um, so again, these, you know, these images are things that we've seen before in the show. Um, and without giving too much away, uh, cave systems will will appear again later on in the series uh, for very specific and important reasons. Mm. But in this cave, there's what looks like a giant computer and several bunk beds that have been decorated with drawings of Napoleon. <laughs> and Josephine? Yes. Yeah, I think it is Josephine. Whilst number six is looking at these pictures, he hears somebody approaching in this case uh, there's somebody humming danny boy who is uh about to come down uh through like a you know a ladder or something through another level in this cave system and as he uh, makes his way down the stairs uh, number six appears and sneaks up on him and knocks him out and then goes over to him and uh, takes his clothes yes which are napoleonic <laughs> in in nature so it's unclear exactly what's happening at this point but having seen pictures as well of Napoleon in the caves, it's interesting that you know those pictures are things that inspire what these people are doing. And also the episode itself is framed by the picture book, which is, which is actually inspiring what's happening in the episode. Mm. I also like the fact that as he's taking the guy's clothes as a disguise, he also takes over the singing of Oh Danny Boy <laughs> <laughs> and finishes the song off for him. <laughs> But I think it's quite badly dubbed, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) So we go back to uh, the lighthouse now, more clearly to see exactly what's going on. Inside we have uh, Kenneth Griffith, who's dressed as Napoleon, who is inspecting his troops. And as he's marching along the line with his hand tucked into his jacket, he then castigates his own troops for doing exactly the same thing, sort of undoing their undoing their hands, pulling them away from himself and getting and getting quite upset about things. Yeah, it has a bit of a tantrum, really. Yeah. And then we see that Sonia is now in the lighthouse as well. 
and she tells him that number six is dead. He says something like, if only your mother could see you now. And she says, oh, tell me again about her last Carol recharge. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly this is an entire family of psychopaths. Who have a strange Napoleon fixation. Yes. So he tells the troops that in one hour's time, London will lie in ruins. So obviously the clock is ticking. And meanwhile, down in the armoury, which is in some level of the lighthouse, uh, number six knocks out yet another guard and promptly bundles him down the hole where the ladder goes down to the uh, the sleeping quarters below. And now that he's got the army to himself, rather than arm himself, what he does is start what he does is start rigging the weapons that are in there, uh, first with the guns and then later with the sort of handheld grenade things. He uh, starts messing with their components. Yeah, so I think the plan is to make sure that guns, etc. will all backfire. And when anything is being used, it'll cause more damage to the person who's using it than the intended targets. So Schnipps is still telling his troops about his grand plans for (laughs) London once it's been destroyed. He's clearly done this many, many times. Yes. Napoleon Square instead of Trafalgar Square. Uh, Noble Nelson's column is going to be Napoleon's column. Mm. Basically, he's going to take every landmark in London and put the word Napoleon in front of it. <laughs> and Sonia, curiously, will have Bond Street, mm. which I know is a reference to Bond Street itself, the actual Bond Street. But I'd like to also think it was a reference to Bond. <laughs> I was thinking about Monopoly. Because <laughs> uh, in British Monopoly, Bond Street is one of the dark green properties, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So it's quite quite a fancy place. It's also where the clothes shops are and everything like that, isn't it? Yeah, which relates to where we've seen Sonia at the beginning of the episode as well. Mm. Um, her general heightened fashion sense, which uh, persists throughout the episode. Yeah, but the troops are not overwhelmed to be offered Chelsea barracks. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he clearly wins them over by offering them some other things as well, like Wembley Stadium, that kind of thing. Yeah, so although this is a a coordinated attack which he is launching on London, each of the... Uh, members of his patrol are all uh, different nationalities, aren't they? There's a, a Scotsman, a Welshman, and I think there's somebody from sort of up north. <laughs> yeah, sort of like from Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. So in England, but from over from the north of England as well. So they're all plotting this attack on, on London. And the one who's missing is uh, the Irish member of the team, who is O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. And this guy seems to be pretty unreliable. And uh, Schnipps is clearly annoyed that once again O'Rourke is not to be found, although he's told by the others that he's down in the armoury. And we realise that this is the guy who was uh, bundled away by Number 6 earlier. So we then cut back to uh, Number 6, who is still carrying on disabling or rigging all the guns and grenades, etc., down in the armoury. And uh, another guard, presumably one who's been sent by Schnipps to go and find out where O'Rourke is, enters as well and tries to sneak up on number six, but number six is actually wise to this and clobbers him and then drags him away as well. Yeah, so Schnipps is now starting the countdown process to fire the rocket. Uh, He flicks every switch but one, which Sonia has to remind him to do. So he's clearly not entirely on top of this plan of his. He seems a little bit flustered, whereas she seems to know exactly what she's doing. But he announced that the plan is to move out to sea and to initiate the final part of the plan from the boat. And he orders them all to go and find O'Rourke because they seem to need O'Rourke for this next phase of the operation. Yeah. And much like events that take place in the village, it's interesting that their plans do involve 
things happening out at sea as well. Mm. And so as all the troops go down into the armory to ambush number six, it enters into a very, very strange, slightly sort of Three Stooges style farce of a fight that takes place Mm. um, between these four or five troops and number six. They try and jump him, but ultimately what happens is he's kind of clobbering them together. He's throwing them around a little bit. They bump into each other. They have this kind of keystone cops kind of quality to them as well. Uh, they also move as one and uh, and similarly kind of you know fall over as one or collapse and things and do all these kind of crazy things as well. Yeah, it, he then goes outside the lighthouse and stands in plain view of all of them, <laughs> waiting quite patiently for them to take up firing positions mm. and open fire, ultimately on themselves because he's rigged all of the guns to backfire and they all manage to shoot themselves dead. Yeah, and it's a really weird moment because as the guns backfire... I don't think it's shot in reverse, but it's uh, but the um, but the footage of them sort of being thrown backwards appears to be sped up, doesn't it? Mm. Because the way that they they move just seems really weird. I don't know why they've chosen to do it here, but it just adds to the slightly surreal farcical nature of it all. If they're kind of being thrown around like this in a in a really weird fashion, so you know the plan itself is completely crazy, and we've descended into this kind of fever dream of the end of the episode as this plan is being executed. It doesn't really work. Um, it hasn't really been thought through and these are not competent enough people to do it. And so it's arguably quite easy for number six to get the better of them. But the way it's played out, it is it is done as a as a complete sort of farce, as I was saying. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's people bumbling around and losing control all the while number six just sort of being quite in control and, and taking everything out. I see. You're not the Duke of Wellington, are you? Ah, well, I expect you're surprised to meet me. Don't you think it's clever? And I'm an extraordinary man, crazy. <laughs> this is the nose cone we're in now. So, you see, when the rocket reaches London, you will be the first to know. Won't that be exciting? I'll just go to pieces. So number six heads up to the control room, but Sonia gets the drop on him uh, with her own gun and says, this one won't backfire. (laughs) So uh, sure enough, in true spy thriller Bond movie form, uh, he ends up getting captured by the bad guys and tied to a chair while they explain their entire plan to him. (laughs) (laughs) So I do wonder if that was actually a trope in bond things back then because i think now we know it as you know as the classic bond thing that happens when the villain reveals their plan like that but the fact they do it here was it basically spoofing what had happened in the first couple of movies or something i don't don't really see whether it was a bond thing at this point or if it was just a general thing that used to happen when you know this power mad villain would would rock up and reveal their plans like this to the uh to the hero Yes, but there are some great one-liners in this. When uh, Sonia ties him up and she says, it's mountaineering rope, it would hold an elephant. (laughs) And he replies, I must remember that the next time I go climbing with one. (laughs) And uh, when Schnips is explaining to him about his plan and uh, starts gleefully revealing that the lighthouse itself is the rocket, and number six joins in, revealing that he's pretty much guessed the entire thing anyway, (laughs) the lighthouse is the rocket... And Snipper says, you've guessed, 
you're not the Duke of Wellington, are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's completely inside his own uh, Napoleon complex to the extent of believing that if this is his arch enemy, this must be the Duke of Wellington. <laughs> and of course, this isn't the first Napoleon that we've had in The Prisoner because there was a Napoleon in Dance of the Dead. Yeah. Was it the... Was it the doctor or the scientist who was Napoleon? It was the, the other doctor, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... Again, you could view this as a summation of various things that have happened in the show up until now. Because if things that Six has seen in the village are forming you know, tangential parts of this story, you know, the idea of the fancy dress that was seen in the, um, in the Dance of the Dead sequence... Uh, with the carnival, etc. All that stuff is essentially coming to the fore here because we actually have everyone dressing up in silly costumes. Mm. And uh, the only addition is that because it's a story, everything has become, at this point, uh, at the conclusion, completely absurd and farcical. Yeah, and Sonia has managed to change outfit again because only a minute ago she was wearing um, one of those gigantic powdered wigs Mm. and elaborate dress. And now it's all gone and she's wearing a very stylish 60s sort of cap and coat. Hmm. It's almost like it's playing on it's playing on the uh, the problems that you would have with continuity by saying, look, this is a story. Any of these things could happen. So self-consciously saying these are the things that just make the story move along. It has nothing to do with with real pure logic. So you can get away with a lot of things, which is why they, I think they play with costume changes and you know, silly jokes about the back projection spinning around, etc. And even knowingly putting a, a TARDIS in the background as well. Because I realise now that this is probably... I know it's not, obviously, Doctor Who in there. Maybe it is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but this must also be the first appearance of a TARDIS in colour. Yes, yeah. Well. It would have been. Yeah. Because Doctor Who at this point was still being shot yeah. in black and white. And I think this would have been shown in black and white originally, wouldn't it? In the UK it would have been, and it would have yeah. been shown in colour in America. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure how frequently the blue police box was shown on television in colour around this time. I know it would have featured in other TV shows, etc. But its use as uh, the TARDIS is what it's known for now. But I think its primary use would have been in black and white for a few years after this as well. So sirens start sounding and buttons start flashing and uh, Schnips explains that the flight pattern for the rocket is set and they've got to go. So they rush off downstairs to very inconveniently start getting all of his papers that he insists are going to be necessary for history because he's such a great man and everyone will want to put them in presumably the Napoleonic National Library (laughs) of Napoleonville once he's finished renaming everything. Um, but for some reason they haven't got all of these things together before as you would normally do if you were sensible so while they're busy packing all of this downstairs number six is busy escaping upstairs and he's trying to struggle free of the mountaineering elephant holding rope (laughs) uh, at which point he discovers that the padded top of the chair just slides off and he has this very arch look on his face where you know, it is fun to see him playing these scenes, you know, as a joke, um, given that there is very little humour in number six in a lot of the episodes, you know, you know, so directly. I mean, there's there's very dark humour, in, you know, in The Prisoner up until this point, but it's never number six um, being so arch uh, in all his responses. So I think it's nice that he's having fun with it, 
it has that kind of feel of um, a show where when it's about to end, you can do whatever you want. So let's just go all out and do um, a slightly absurd, not comedy episode of The Prisoner, but one that doesn't take itself too seriously. And for an episode late in the run, where clearly they must have known that they're not going to come back to this world again, you can make jokes about the potential spy origins of the character and arguably the genre itself that would have produced Danger Man and ultimately birthed the prisoner as well. Because you know, he, he clearly got bored making Danger Man, saying this is not what I want to do week in, week out, doing this you know, doing this spy show. And yet ultimately he returns to the whole genre in uh, the final episode that isn't really part of the two-part finale that makes up the 16th and 17th episodes of The Prisoner. Yeah, I have to say, just before he escapes from the lighthouse itself, there's a bit where he starts attempting to derail the plans by flicking every switch on the control panel of the rocket, not really knowing what any of them do, just trying to keep it from launching or making a different direction or anything. And as he's there, kind of frantically at this console, flicking switches and turning dials and doing stuff while wearing he's taken off the guard's coat and is now back in his uh, sort of Sherlock Holmes style uh, jacket with the roughly cuffs coming out of the end and that slightly weird costume combined with frantically flicking switches at a console does make him seem like the doctor (laughs) (laughs) oh because that thing in the middle which has got the map of London looks like the central column doesn't it yeah the TARDIS yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> so I'm sure somebody has made I mean somebody must have made some some funny video cutting together scenes of Magoon running around the central pillar with you know shots of the Doctor doing exactly the same thing in, in the TARDIS as well. Well you could basically do that but with the the sound replaced with the sound of the TARDIS going yeah. vroosh, vroosh, vroosh. <laughs> it's the worst TARDIS impression anyone's ever done. Yes it was <laughs> That cannot be fixed either. I can't do a better one. So we're stuck with that. <laughs> so everything in the room starts to blow up and he takes it as his cue to get out of there. So he takes the uh, conveniently strong mountaineering rope and uses it to abseil down the side of the lighthouse. Meanwhile, Schnipps and Sonia are still stuffing briefcases filled with important papers. <laughs> and by the time... Um... Uh, Sonia and Schnips actually have decided that they have to leave and uh, and actually get to the door. They see that uh, Six is already about to take the boat, which has been moored up to the side of the lighthouse. Yeah, and in order to stop him, they decide to throw grenades at him. But I'm not sure what they thought they were going to escape on if they blew up the boat that he was on. But it's a story, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, it's designed to look good and and create a level of excitement, but it doesn't matter. In that, it, you know, it's it's these lapses in logic which seem completely bonkers, but for some reason they seem to work in the context of this. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately for them, the uh, grenade watsits that they've picked up are the ones that he rigged before. <laughs> They're not watsits. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what the official term is for something like that. But I heard that and I thought about you know actual watsits, <laughs> which are a type of crisp. For Americans, or chips, or potato snack, or whatever. Cheesy uh, puffs. Cheesy puffs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I heard like grenade watsits, and I was like, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> I, I, a grenade watsit would be like a, a super spicy type of watsit. 
Like, like a hot chilli pepper, what's it? Someone's got to have made these. Anyway. <laughs> they throw these things, but it, it's it's the ones where the bits come off. You've seen the episode, you know what it is. The bits come off the end and they're holding the stick, only he's put the plastic explosives in the stick instead and it blows them up in the lighthouse with it. Yeah, and there's a nice... Well, like, I'm not sure how much of a precedent this was in the prison, but this looks like a model shot, doesn't it? And, they, and you don't really see many explosions in the show. So it's kind of odd to see a proper one. And there are a couple in the episode. They're the ones earlier on when the uh, when the cricket balls explode. But in this case, it's like a proper, it's a proper model which is being blown up, you know, in a in a pool of water or something like that. So it's strange to have these very action orientated images in a show like this, um, simply because there was never much use for it in other episodes uh, where there would be, you know, the use of any kind of ammunition really or explosives. Yeah, and it's nice because if you were doing this now, you would just have a CGI lighthouse undergoing a CGI explosion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do like a good model shot. Mm. I I think it's a lost art. I I really liked it when Red Dwarf brought back models instead Mm. of the CGI that they were using in those kind of intermediate years. Mm. It just looks better. So with the lighthouse slash rocket detonated where it stands and Sonia and Schnipp's both dead uh, the story is over and we see on the pages of the storybook that the last image is of a man on a boat hunting a whale which is a very moby dick yeah and i wonder if this is again another in joke um not related to uh, other genres but much like the boxing perhaps which could relate to mcguin himself uh, one of the sort of famous lost productions and because nothing really survives of it except for probably a few pictures um, is McGowan's role in um, a very avant-garde production of Moby Dick that Orson Welles staged in London. Um, that was apparently, I think, is that one that featured Peter Salas as well? Because they went on to be together in Brand, didn't yes, they? Yeah, um, You know, it's been spoken about as this wonderful production. Obviously, you know, nothing has survived of it at all. And there's always this weird question over, you know, Orson Welles working with Patrick McGowan. That must have been quite exciting. Um, but it could just be an allusion to that. Well, so a real in-joke about uh, McGowan's stage work as well uh, before the work on The Prisoner. Mm. And also, I do wonder if there is something Ahab-esque about Number Six as a figure who is relentlessly resisting the force of the village or the forces of society in a, in a sort of futile quest in the same way that Ahab was relentlessly hunting the whale that you know, really just symbolised everything else. And that is how I saved London from the mad scientist. No more tonight. It's way past your bedtime. Come on now, bed. That's a good girl. So from this image of the uh, man in the boat hunting the whale, we don't get a page turn, but rather the book closes and we realise that we're being told a story from uh, the village storybook, which appears to actually be a picture book. Mm. And the person reading it is number six himself. And we are then back in the village. And he has this wonderful line uh, where he says, and that is how I save London from the mad scientist. (laughs) 
And I like that simply because, although he's telling a story, you have no idea whether there's an element of truth to what was being told in this story anyway. Because obviously we've seen very high-level international spy-based adventures that Number 6 may have been involved with in episodes like Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. So he's telling this story and kind of uh, spoofing all the elements of it and filling it with in-jokes. But one wonders if actually there was an element of truth to this um, and he's telling the story. And uh, most importantly, the audience of this story are quite unique in this episode because he's telling this as a bedtime story to a group of children who are all in their pyjamas and ready to go to bed. Yeah, I think these are the only children we ever see in the village at all. Um, I I don't know if they were just flown in especially for him to tell <laughs> stories to. I mean, goodness only knows. Yeah, I mean, they have no badges. I don't know if that's because they're about to go to sleep and you just don't <laughs> do that. But um, it's it struck me actually watching this that I it was only here that I realised that we hadn't seen children before in the village. It's actually quite sinister because obviously the village seems to grab people from from the world and and bring them here so why it would bring children here is actually quite quite scary one possibility is that these are children who have actually been born in the village and i think there is something that in arrival the maid says when she says that she's been in the village her entire life the implication there is that she's grown up there as well so maybe the idea has always been floated that there are children in the village but it's weird to actually see them on screen for the first time um, in such a throwaway moment as well, where you realise that you know, the story is being told to them. It's, yeah, it's just very weird to think that we haven't seen it that, that far. And it makes you wonder sort of what other elements of the village we kind of haven't seen, not by um, not by choice, but just by you know, not realising there are always new layers to the village that have yet to be exposed. And I think having the story end in this way where you've got a group of children who are being told a bedtime story, it does feel like a precursor for the episode coming next yeah. in some ways. Which is, I mean, it's even literally called Once Upon a Time. Mm. You could have started this episode with the title Once Upon a Time, there's a mad scientist in a lighthouse. And uh, we see that watching number six tell this story uh, is number two, who's got it up on the, the big screen in the green dome, and as the chair spins around, we see that number two is Schnips. And his assistant, who has a number, but I, I can't entirely make it out on the screen. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was 10 or 11 or 17. Um, I mean, at one point, actually, I I predicted that it would end up being five. Because you know the bit where Sonia is firing, I think, the rocket launcher or something on the sort of visor bit that's over the front of it, the number on it is, is 652. Hmm. And I thought, oh, it'll be six, and then number two, and then number five. But that, it turns out that she's not uh, uh, she's not number five. Um, and also she's dressed fully in black here as well. Yeah, yeah. So the costume is very similar to the kind of thing she wore in the story, but she's turned from black to white. I think, I suppose, a reflection of of the way in which you can put characters into stories and actually... So do what you want with them. They're still the same people, but you can actually change fundamental elements of them um, in order to tell these uh, tell these stories. Yeah, and uh, Schnips and Village Sonia, as I can only refer to her because I can't figure out what her number is, hmm. um, has a com- have a conversation where 
they reveal that essentially the plan was that uh, number six might drop his guard if he was around children telling them the story. Uh, quite why he thought this, I have absolutely no idea. Maybe the story was about why he resigned. <laughs> I don't really get it. I think it's 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 funny that we've talked about how ludicrous some of the plot elements are because they're in the context of a story that he's telling, you mm. know, from cricket match with exploding cricket balls being trapped in a Turkish bath and, you know, putting having a fishbowl thing put on his head, the boxing match, the tunnel, all these weird things. And yet now we're in the world of the village and the plot that number two and Sonia were trying to instigate is even more confusing than what we've just seen in this fictional story. Because I don't understand what letting his guard down, you know, it was <laughs> was meant to be. But um, it's one of those moments where they almost seem desperate. And maybe at this stage in the series the number twos are becoming so desperate they will just try absolutely anything. But why putting him in the in the presence of children would result in him telling a story that would somehow be useful, I, I don't really know. Uh, the, one, the one interesting thing is whether this is much like Living in Harmony and if when the story was taking place, it, it would ever show number two, for example, watching the actual episode on his screen as if it was a virtual reality style thing like Living in Harmony, which it isn't. I think they must just be watching this story take place as he's telling it and thinking maybe he's going to tell some other part of the story and it'll reveal some interesting fact. You know, maybe they thought by getting him to talk about a story which involved spies, he would reveal some element of his past uh, that was fundamental to his resignation. But yeah, I don't really get it. But they're quite angry that the plan has failed. And uh, th- th- this is the only time we ever really see the real schnips and Sonia, I suppose, is in, in their guises in the village, just this little snippet of them. And uh, they're watching, still watching up on the big screen as number six makes his way out of the uh, room where he is. Uh, he turns to where the camera monitoring him is and says into it directly to them and to us to an extent, good night, children everywhere and this is a reference to a a radio show called children's hour uh, which was well for children obviously full of stories and things and it 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 was very famous in the 50s and 60s and it always ended with the sign-off good night children everywhere and as he leaves the house he picks up a clown toy and sits it so that it's staring directly into the surveillance camera at uh, number two. <laughs> and I like the fact that it essentially is setting up the audience as well to be uh, left with this sense that we're reaching sort of the conclusion of the show now. It's like this is the last uh, sort of fanciful excursion that the series is going to take because it's about to kind of descend into, well, the next episode is 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 a wonderful one, a very bizarre one. And it leads directly into the finale, which is, without giving any spoilers, completely crazy and a wonderful hour of television as well. So it feels like, you know, this is them saying, and these are the closing moments of the fairy tale. And it's all about to get very real and very serious in the village. You tell them a blessed fairy tale. 
That one wouldn't drop his guard with his own grandmother. Good night, children. Everywhere. So that's it for our discussion of The Girl Who Was Deaf. Yeah, a really unusual episode of the show, again, in keeping with these last few episodes uh, of the series, but one which has a slightly lighter tone that works as a one-off, I think, that wouldn't have been able to be sustained um, as a general way of, of, of making these episodes. But it showed, I think, again, that sense of being able to play with the format of the show a little bit. And I think the you know the one weakness is that it it shoehorns in that that structure into a standard episode by obviously having the closing scene with number two and and uh, Sonia to make it seem like oh yeah this was part of a plan it doesn't actually matter at this point I think they could have just ended it in some other way and either not relate it to a specific ploy by the village to try and find out some information from number six but it goes without saying i think that it is a really it's a really fun episode to watch and i think the fact that it's there before the finale like we were saying i mean it's it's there to draw a line in the sand and say this is the one that closes out the bulk of the series i think now we're going to enter the conclusion of uh, of what the prisoner was all about if there is indeed a meaning behind that <laughs> So coming up next, we've got a chat with Rob Fairclough, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is the author of The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series, and was also behind the Prisoner script books, which are unfortunately out of print, but they are available on the uh, second-hand market, uh, if you can take out a second mortgage, basically, <laughs> um, that publish the original scripts um, which are often very different from the episodes that you see up on the screen. We spoke to Rob about The Girl Who Was Death because it's one of his favourite episodes and indeed it's the first episode of The Prisoner he ever saw. So we're going to bring you that discussion now. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined this time by Rob Fairclough, the author of The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series. Hi, Rob. Hello there. How are you? Very well. How are you? <laughs> oh, very good. I'm very good. So we're here to talk about The Girl Who Was Deaf. Indeed. Why is this episode a particular favourite of yours? Um, well, it's the first episode of The Prisoner I ever saw. Um I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Um, I'd, I'd seen articles on the prisoner, and I think it was—it would have been probably would have been an early starburst or something. And it was all very intriguing and, it, and all a bit strange, as you can imagine. Um, and then in 1982, uh, there was a late-night season called of—I think it was during the Olympics or something. Um, late-night season called um, Best of British. And, um, you know, to plug the gaps in the schedule, they were showing all this old TV drama. And one of the episodes was a girl who was deaf. And um, it was, like, ridiculous. It was, like, sort of 11 o'clock at night or something, you know. And um, I sort of stayed up. And uh, <laughs> I, I suppose you could say I had my mind comprehensively blown, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you make of The Prisoner as an idea, then, given that this was such an unusual first episode mm. to have seen? Well, 
that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I th- I'd read a bit about it, and I kind of vaguely knew. I also, that's right, I also remember seeing the, the English Library, um, New English Library, you know, the three paperbacks, the old American novels. Uh, I remember seeing them, for some reason, a local bookshop in, in Lowestoft had them uh, for some bizarre reason, and I remember seeing those. So I was familiar with the idea of Port Merion and that this guy was trapped there. And, of course, you know, the good girl of his death isn't about that at all. <laughs> So, um, I don't know. I mean, the thing, I'll tell you what struck me initially, though, was, um, I mean, up, up to that point, um, I suppose the biggest show I was into was Doctor Who, um, which at that point was made in the traditional way of most TV drama, um, mainly video recorded studio scenes with a few bits of 16mm, you know, film dropped in. So that's what I was used to. And um, even though I, I vaguely remember watching The Saint and, you know, The Champions and things like that when I was really little, I remember watching that title sequence of The Prisoner and thinking, this is incredible. I mean, just the editing, the camera angles, you know, the way it was shot, the way it was paced to the music. I mean, it was completely new, that kind of... Well, it's commonplace now. I mean, all TV's made like that. But that idea of shooting TV like a film that's what really hit me first off. I could, you know, that wonderful, uh, um, you know, the kind of runway thing and the the car shoots down and there's his face with the hair blowing back and, you know, and then it cuts to him going over Westminster Brit. Incredible stuff. I, I just, I mean, that was the thing that hit me the most. Just that, the kind of pacing of that. And uh, that's what really, I think, really ignited my interest. That, you know, I mean, it was made in 82, so it had been over 10 years old. But, I mean, it seemed like it was 10 years in the future, at least, you know, the, the, the whole idea of making TV like that, you know, which, of course, it was proved to be, I suppose, you know. The Girl Who Was Death itself is a very unusual episode. Could you comment on on how it works, um, especially in light of it being part of the second production block where where to get these last four episodes done, the show does take a turn in in moving away from how uh, the previous ones have, uh, have been put together yeah certainly i mean for people who don't know i think they, they made um i mean there was uh the second production block was very small it was um did not forsake me and my darling living in harmony um the girl who was death and then straight after the girl who was death was fallout um obviously once upon a time had been made several months before which ultimately became the second to last episode yeah, it was a strange time, really. I mean, the um, I mean, basically, Maguna got to the point when George Mark Steinhead's story had left in a in a bit of a huff because they, for various reasons, um, falling out over the origination of the show, and he didn't like the way Mark Stone didn't like the way it was really going uh, in terms of content and stuff. So Maguna was really on his own by then with David Tomlin, and um, they couldn't go back to Port Mirian because the kind of money was running out, and they were casting around for ideas. I mean, um, Do Not Forsake Me was a Vincent Tilsley script, which was radically rewritten, as most of these later episodes were, actually, thinking about it. Living in Harmony would have been an idea um, by Ian Rakoff, who was an assistant film editor, who'd sort of been kicking the idea around for a while with David Tomlin. Um, and that became the Western Living in Harmony, which was, again, quite rewritten to what eventually read it on screen. And um, The Gutter Was Death, uh, apparently it was an old um, Danger Man idea um, that had been knocking around for a while. Uh, and again, with nowhere to go, they shot a lot of it right in Kent. They went, went to the, the old fun fair um, in Battersea 
in London, which is now isn't there anymore. It's been knocked down, and uh, and down to the Kent coast. So it was really a strange time. Um, they were just, re- you know, for whatever reason, I don't actually know. Still to this day, don't know really know why they made seventeen. It seems an odd number of episodes to make for an ITC show at that period. But for whatever reason, they were kind of left in this kind of scramble to get stuff done. Um, and I hope that answers your question. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, obviously, that uh, Mark Stein had left at this point. Mm. Um, did he originally want the show to be uh, more of a of a spy, sort of Mission Impossible-style show anyway? Because that's kind of what The Girl Who Was Death is almost a pastiche on. It is. I mean, it, it, Mark Stein's a fascinating character, and for people who don't know... Um, there have been long been rumours that he was actually a real spy because he works as a journalist in Europe after the war. Um, had lots of, <laughs> which is ideal cover if you're a spy because <laughs> you can go anywhere, and he could speak German fluently. So if you know if he was nipping back and forth behind the Iron Curtain, he'd be fine. You know, um, and as people might know, uh, a while after uh, the prisoner, he was the story editor on Callum, which was a very very bleak, very fatalistic Cold War show. Um, which was primarily what he was really interested in. He was really interested in that kind of side of espionage. He wasn't particularly interested in fantasy. Um, later in his career, he did a show um, for Thames, because he was head of script at Thames by that point, um, called Mr. Palfrey of Westminster, which is basically a kind of George Smiley character who's a spy catcher. So he's very much interested in that kind of, if you like, Len Dayton, um, Le Carre style of espionage fiction. Um, he wasn't particularly interested in fantasy, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fishing around to think if he worked on anything else that was remotely similar to The Prisoner. I don't think he did, really. Um, and again, he, he knew of this place in Scotland uh, called Invalair Lodge, which the Special Operations Executive used during World War II for if an agent was unreliable, had a drink problem, or, or you know, was with folk prone to fits of violence or something, they got, they all got put away in this place. They were told they were being trained for future missions, but they weren't. They were just being kept out of the way. So he really knew about this kind of real place. So, no, I think it was, um, again, it was McGowan's ideas about society and philosophy and particularly psychology that really shaped the prisoner. I think that's largely why they, him and Mark Steen parted company. Having... Uh, living in harmony and the girl who was deaf next to each other mm. in the sort of traditional broadcast order has a, a weird effect of two episodes back to back where an awful lot of what's going on didn't really happen. Mm. H- had they always been intended to actually be broadcast that way or, or should they have been split up a little bit? Well, it's an interesting question, actually, because if you look at the American screening order, um, Living Harmony's episode eight or nine, so it's right in the middle um, of, of the run, which makes, as you say, much more sense in a because it's much more of a kind of wrench if it's right in the middle rather than at the end, you know. The thing, the thing was with the UK screening order, though, that they were, they were running so late on getting the episodes finished that towards the end they were basically being shown in the, the order they were finished. I did, did not forsake me living at was there. Obviously they had um, once in a pot of time you know, uh, already done, so that was fine. But yes, I mean, that's basically why they end up in that order in the UK, because that was the order they were finished. (laughs) (laughs) And they were really, I mean, towards the end, the the screening dates were really, really catching up, um, as you probably know. And you mentioned earlier that 
the script was a a reworked version of uh, a Danger Man script. So was that uh, reworked uh, by the same writer, Terence Feely, or was it um, him writing a uh, sorry rewriting something that was written previously? Um, I think from what I can get from what I can gather, I think it was an idea of David Tomlins who who was involved um, in the latter stages of Danger Man as kind of a assistant producer, I think, as well as a director. Uh, but Terence Philly actually took it and ran with it. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I've been reading the original script again, and it, like a lot of these, um, there are a lot of differences to what was actually uh, ends up on the screen. And according to Feely, um, McGowan and Mark, uh, sorry, McGowan and Tomlin liked the script so much, they said they came to see him when he was on holiday in Cannes and said, look, we've been to see Lou Grade. We think we can get the money to make this a 90-minute special. Can you rework the script? Um, um, to make it, you know, fill 90 minutes. So he did over his holiday, and of course, ultimately, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but there's some wonderful sequences in the original script, in, um, and I do wonder if it, that original script is the script, or bits of it are the script for the 90-minute thing, because as well as what's on screen, there's a whole sequence where he gets lost in a maze. He ends up in a jungle and is attacked by a, a kind of native... Um, and there's a really surreal bit where he hears this right lion roaring and he's looking around the lion and this little cat walks past and it does a roar like the uh, MGM lion, you know. <laughs> Very strange. It's, well, it's like something out of the 67 Casino Royale, you know, it's that off the wall. <laughs> and he, then he ends up back in the maze and then there's this gardener with a, a pack on his back, that set, uh, those tanks on his back that says insecticide and... And so he walks past and he turns around the other side says homicide and stuff. You know, and it's full of and there's also a guy on stilts with a machine gun. It's completely off the wall, you know. Um and the other the major thing as well, uh, that it, it gets completely changed is in the original script. Bits of it survive in what's on screen, but um instead of having a Napoleon fixation, Doctor Schnips the villain. He is actually a Nazi, as a, you know, and all his kind of gang dress up as Hitler. They have hit the wigs and they have hit the moustaches. So that all got completely changed and changed to Napoleon. Um, and they're all Napoleons, which makes it much more like an Avengers episode, you know, when you start doing that. Cause a lot of Avengers villains that were fixated on one thing, you know, and took that forward. So it's really quite fascinating. I don't know why they changed it either. I mean, I, I do know that Kenneth Griffith played Napoleon in the 1963 um, production for TV. So I don't know if that was another of the prisoners in jokes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, McGowan seemed to like in jokes. No, he didn't like in jokes in the prisoner if he didn't make them. That was the point. (laughs) Um, Because famously there's a bit where um, uh, Dr. Schnipps is looking for one of the gang and he says, Blast, O'Rock, where's he got to? And if you actually look at what he says, it's been dubbed over. It says, Blast, O'Toole, where is he? Because you know, <laughs> Peter O'Toole was a great friend of Kenneth, Kenneth um, <laughs> Griffiths, and he told me that, um, you know, McGowan tapped him on the shoulder and said, Look, uh, no, no in-jokes, uh, no in-jokes, Kenny. You know? <laughs> mean, meaning only I do the jokes, mate, you know, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating script. I mean, I think... For me, what's fascinating about it is, um, it's not just, I mean, people dismiss it as filler or have dismissed it, but if you look at actually what's going on in it, it is a great sort of riff on all the kind of spy fiction that was going on. I mean, you've, you've got the kind of um, femme fatale, blonde killer woman who was, and, you know, killer women were all over the place in the 60s in like, you know, Thunderball, Fiona Volpe, um, that Bulldog Drummond film, 
deliver the mail. They, they always turn up in Man from Uncle as well and Matt Helm, you know, and all this stuff. So that that's really kind of consistent with what was going on. I mean, even the record in the record shop, you could take that as a spoof of Mission Impossible because mm -hmm. initially in Mission Impossible, it wasn't tapes, it was records they got their orders from, you know. <laughs> um, so it's really, and also it's got this, I mean, to go back to your original question right at the top about what I thought of it, when I saw it originally for the first time, I just thought, oh, this is what the 1960s looked like, obviously, you know. Because <laughs> it's got the cricket, it's got the, you know, the beaver fashions, it's got that wonderful idea of an England where there were still pubs you could go into and you could, have, you know, it would cost you about, I don't know, a shilling to have all those drinks, you know. <laughs> and there's fun for, you know, it's got that wonderful kind of feel of a, probably what the Americans thought England was like in the 60s, if you like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, at the same time, it, it, there is still the kind of vaguely prisoner-esque point that um, Sonia says to him, um, you're a born survivor and I'm a born killer. And of course, in the village context, he is a born survivor, you know. Mm. And also in The Girl Who Was Death, he ends up in a village, a <laughs> strange village full of traps, which he has to escape from. So I think, you know, Feely was still very keyed into what was going on. Of course, he'd written The Schizoid Man, um, which is, I don't know if you do know, but he was asked to join Everyman Films by McGoon and Tomlin on the strength of The Schizoid Man. So he was kind of involved with the company, even though he's not credited to that um, extent on the prisoner itself. He was involved with them and worked on several projects after prisoner finished, in fact, as well. Um, I, it's just, I mean, it's like, you know, and again, it's, it, even though you initially think, well, this is quite just a jolly fantasy, once you start looking at what's going on in it, it is a lot of clever stuff, you know, um, which makes it very picturesque, I think, you know. And what are your favourite sequences in The Girl Who Was Death? Oh, it's one of my favourite sequences. Well, where, where do you start? I mean, again, I mean, if, I'm trying to think. Again, when you know he's in, he's in the um, he's in the Turkish bath, and he's and she sticks the broom to thing. Shot for shot, that is like the same scene in Thunderball. Um, oh God, there's just loads of it. I mean, the funny stuff with Alexis Canna at, at the fun fair, and I watch your game, Sherlock Holmes. I'll, I'll, you know, and all that stuff, <laughs> which is again isn't in the script. I mean, um, I think he was. He just uh, was hanging around and he got on with Tomlin and McGoon and, well, from what he said anyway, that he just turned up on occasion and they wrote him in, you know, which <laughs> I can actually imagine them doing, actually. Oh, all, and all the stuff with Kenneth Griffiths and, you know, I mean, the, the kind of lines are just, you know, um, you know, t tell me about her last cavalry charge, not child. <laughs> <laughs> and then also the, de the deadpan stuff McGoon does when he's, you know... Um, the kind of bond, the bond lines where she says, um, you know, uh, what was it? Oh, it could hold the rope could hold an elephant, and he says, I must remember that next time I go climbing with one. You know, <laughs> and the way he plays those kind of deadpan sort of bond lines, I mean, you could actually see he would actually work. You know, I mean, people said he he didn't really have a light touch, but I, th I think I think the girl who shows he did. He could be really funny. You know, um, you know, and in lots of it, he is extremely quite quite amusing and you know and just the stuff that makes you draws attention breaks the fourth wall like you know the back projection when he spins it round you know because it's it's really it's just telling you that this is actually a film with the back projection you know I, I love all that stuff it's, that's just so sort of 60s you know I mean uh, from beginning to end it's a joy I mean it's a thing I'll put on if I'm feeling a bit fed up you know I'll put that <laughs> on and it immediately cheers me up you know <laughs> 
Yeah, you mentioned the Avengers earlier, and it 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 often to me gave off a sort of Avengers vibe in the in the slightly caperness of it. Um, mm. You could you could almost put Steed and Mrs. Peel into that wonderful village with all of the the trapped rooms and, and, mm, it, and it absolutely would feel like an Avengers episode, but um, but the, the villain ultimately feels like a an, an utterly bizarre parody of a Bond villain in his in his lair with the giant rocket. You know, most well, of the mean, volcano. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah, it's pretty obviously couldn't afford the volcano, but <laughs> no, but um, it's also I mean very I mean again that was a very uh, again another sixties trope. I mean going right back to Moonraker. Uh, Fleming novel. I mean, because he's Sir Hugo Drax is an ex-Nazi with a rocket pointed at London. <laughs> um, and as you probably know, uh, in lots of spy fiction of the sixties, the kind of resurgence of like, you know, either Nazi criminals from the war or a new a kind of new fascism. That that was a big thing in sort of sixties spy fiction. So again, that that sort of taps into that, you know. Um, and um, as I say, it's, I don't know why they wanted it down. I'd I, I wonder why they, if it was something to do with international sales. I thought well, this is a bit near the knuckle, you know. Perhaps I don't know. It just nobody's really come up with an explanation as to why they changed Snips from being an out-and-out Nazi to this Napoleon figure, you know. But uh, I'd love to know why. <laughs> in reference to your point about uh, McGowan being the guy who wanted to be in charge of the jokes, I suppose. Um, yes. What do yes. you think about? Uh, the references that are made to uh, to Danger Man throughout the episode. I mean, you mentioned actually that it was a it was a repurposed uh, script to some extent, but you have the appearance of a uh, of Potter and the like. Um, yeah. How does that fit yeah. in? I mean, are these just in jokes or? Well, I mean, I mean, this is a fascinating thing about it. in a lot of um, things that relate to it. Nobody really knows for sure. I remember Christopher Benjamin said. Somebody said to him, do you realise, you know, you, you played the same character in Danger Man and the prisoner? He said, did I? <laughs> and he said, oh, I wish I'd have known because I'd have, I'd have played um, uh, the potter in, the girl who was definitely more like the potter in Corrosion, you know. Um, and of course, you've got the actor called John Dre. I mean, that's got to be deliberate, hasn't it? I mean, it's got to be, you know. And even, you know, and he's wearing the kind of Mac and the cap like John Drake did. I mean, it, the interesting thing is, none of this is none of this visual stuff is in the script. You know, I mean, that's what's interesting. So it was obviously when they were shooting it that they were putting this stuff in. So I'm inclined to think it must have been deliberate. You know, particularly with Tomlin directing it as well. You know, because um, it was the second to last. They must have known the series was finishing, and it's got the end of term thing. I mean, like like all the names in the village, like. David Doe, that's David Tolkien, um, you know, Leonard Snuffett, that's, you know, these are all people who worked on The Prisoner, basically, you know. <laughs> um, it, um, it is fascinating, actually. I mean, it's also the only story, Prisoner story, that you ever see real children. I mean, because a lot of the others, you, you get infantilized adults who are treated like children, you know, uh, who recite nursery rhymes and so on and all but that's the only time you ever see real kids, which is quite, quite bizarre, you know. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, right, I mean, it, it, it's just a wonderful piece of sixties. I'm not saying nonsense is the wrong word. Nonsense is the wrong word too. Sixties, 
eccentricity, if you like. I mean, there's a lot of kind of mad stuff in it, which is very funny. And the bit that makes me laugh at the most is, you know, the thing with the beer glass. <laughs> he keeps drinking it and it says, you've just been poisoned. And then he puts it down and she says, do you, do you want another one, sir? No, thank you. One of those is quite enough. And I just remember roaring when I watched that. I thought, this is hilarious. Everyone said the prisoner was this kind of, you know, very serious kind of philosophical piece. And here, here I was laughing me head off. One late night in 1982, you know. Uh, it's, I mean, it's weird, isn't it, that that should be the sort of episode that, well, for me, it hooked me. And then I just wanted to see the rest, um, which, which, you know, is completely different. You know, it's so... Um, but I do think the serious point to, to this is what, what that episode is, makes it consistent with the rest of The Prisoner is that it's it's mucking around with the kind of idea that film's an illusion and, you know, what you're watching isn't actually real. And, and that kind of idea does turn up in a lot of the episodes, doesn't it, very, to various degrees. Like the Chimes of Big Ben, he thinks he's back in London, he finds out he isn't, you know. And as you said before, living in harmony, it's all a virtual reality thing, you know. So that kind of idea does crop up a lot in The Prisoner, I think. I mean, you know, The Girl Who Was Death, I suppose, is just a very, very... Uh, what's the word? It's kind of the hour-long version of that idea, if you like, I suppose, you know. Um, and, and, and again, I mean, the thing that does harm it should be shown straight after Living Harmony because you get the same kind of coda. At the end, you've got to say it's number two really doing it all. You know, and it's, it was all a ploy. So that does harm it. Whereas if they had split the episodes up and showed them at, the, at either end of the prisoner's run, it does work a lot better. Yes, I think you're right about that, actually. Do you think that if the show had continued, it would have moved more into this uh, style, this kind of, uh, you know, adventures outside of the village uh, model? Mm, it depends, doesn't it? Because you've got two very different approaches, really. You've got the kind of, um, I suppose you've got with... De- do not forsake me, you've got the kind of mandramunkily type idea, you know, that these are actually fairly straight spy stories with a bit of a twist. Or you've got something as mad as um, The Girl Who Was Dead. I mean, I don't really think you could have done... No, I, I don't think you could have done it in the style of The Girl Who Was Death for mm. very long before people <laughs> either got bored with it or it got just completely off the wall, you know. Um, and you have him walking off the set or something, you know, and sort of, you know, like they did at the end of Gangsters or something. That's the only way I could have seen that going, really. Um, I don't know, really. I mean, George Markstone always said, oh, we should have, we should have, he should have adventures around the world. But I thought about it a fair bit and I thought, well, hmm, that's actually going to get, you'd just end up with a kind of conventional ITC show, wouldn't you? You know, um, I mean, many of returns works very well mainly because so nearly all of that is shot on location yeah, and it's you know it's got that remarkable first quarter of an hour 20 minutes with no dialogue that's amazing that never happened on television at that time um and the uh, the whole idea that he ends up back where he started is very clever in that but i beyond that i mean what i don't really see Mm, it's very hard to say what what they would have done. I mean, if someone's just going to turn up at the end being a village agent, you know, it's going to get very predictable quite quickly, I think. Uh, although, who knows what Mark Stein would have done? I mean, he's a very clever writer, a very clever man. Who knows, you know, but I mean, I mean, and, and as McGowan himself often said, he was very much aware that the concept was a very limited one. And, you know, it, and he only had so much to say. And he often... He, 
don't know how much of it was him retrofitting, but he often said, well, there are only seven scripts or there are only seven episodes. The rest of it was filler. Um, but, but, you know, who knows? I mean, it was a great one at reinventing himself, <laughs> saying things up to the fact. So um, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> well, in terms of Terence Feely, I just think, I mean, if you just read the script, it's, absolutely, it's just an absolute joy. It doesn't read like a script. It reads like a short story. Because um, it just, it's just so beautifully written, you know, and um, there's all this stuff about, you know, you know, this this, this terrible muddy boot lands on Potter's um, little shoe shine machine, and it, it looks like he's about to start crying. And all this, <laughs> uh, um, it, it's just beautifully, you know. Actually, all those last few scripts, I think, even yeah, the original version of um, Do Not Forsake Me, Face Unknown, because it is completely different, almost. It's just fascinating to read because. It, what appeared on screen, you know. It's a shame it didn't because it's a much better story than what does appear on screen. Um, I don't know why they, you know, and I don't know why they changed it. I mean, this is this is the interesting thing about this last phase of The Prisoner, that it's such a scramble and it's such madness in, um, uh, for example, I mean, because they'd lost a story editor, so, you know, McGowan was asking other members of the crew, he asked Tony Sloman, Sloman had an idea about an escape tunnel, I think, which never got any further. Eric Myrell did a couple of story treatments. There was one about basically a kind of Malcolm X character who's in the village. He's like a, a black sort of agitator, a straight politician figure. That never came to anything, obviously. There was another story he came up with, which was kind of um, that the village has a religion like it has his church, which is based on the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, so they were really desperate. They were really struggling. And uh, I don't know. It's just really odd. I don't know if they'd already filmed a kind of conclusion, which was Once Upon a Time. My, my, I've always wondered, why did they actually even start a second filming block, knowing full well they didn't have the material, really? Um, why didn't they just shoot a conclusion, which would have been the logical thing to do? So you do 13, and then you do the final one, you know, rather than those other other three. It's all very, very strange. I mean, you know, this far on, I don't think we're ever going to know, because obviously people aren't around anymore. I mean, you know, McGowan's passed on, David Tomlin's passed on, Mark Stein's passed on. I don't, and obviously because of that, we'll never really know what actually happened during the making of The Prisoner, but, you know, in a way that's good, I think, because it's kind of in the nature of it, because <laughs> um, it is such a conundrum anyway, and I think not knowing the full story, that, you know, and we're never going to know the full story now. I, th I think, you know, that would have made McGoohan happy, I think. <laughs> so, Prisoner fans will know you as the author of The Official Companion, but you also mm. write about a lot of other shows from that era as well. Uh, what have you got in the pipeline at the moment that's coming out? Uh, well, it's, it's not in the pipeline, but it has been out for a couple of years. And it's the show uh, that I mentioned Mark's, George Marks and I worked on after The Prisoner, which was Callum and... Uh, mine and Mike Kenwood's book came out October 2016. Um, and we did a little, we were lucky enough to do a event uh, celebrating 40 years of Callan at the BFI um, last year Piers, with Piers Haggard and Peter Mitchell, who's James Mitchell's son who created Callan, so that was very good. Um, people have been nice enough to say it's, you know, the, the kind of last word on the subject, which is very gratifying. Elsewhere, I, I write for Infinity magazine. Um, um, I seem to have picked up the standard for doing 
features on 70s and 80s detective shows. I've, I've just done Hazel, which is the latest issue. Um, and coming up, we've got a trilogy. We've got the XYY Man, Strangers, and Bullman. And again, I've been lucky enough to interview nearly everybody who's still around who's worked on those. Um, and I'm doing a lot of stuff now for the uh, official Doctor Who magazine. Uh, there's something I can't really discuss, but it's coming up to time with um, the new Jodie Whittaker season, which is starting very soon, um, which I'm pleased with. Um, and um, I'll have another article, again, which I can't really talk about, in the, <laughs> in the next issue of Doctor Who magazine, which um, uh, hopefully people will enjoy. So, yeah, I'm, since I moved back to East Anglia, I, I seem to be busier than ever, which is good. <laughs> That's that's the problem with Doctor Who, isn't it? It's too shrouded in secrecy. So well, it, well, I mean, the distinction is incredible. I mean, it's just like I've never known a season like it with nothing speaked out, and they've managed to keep it quiet. That never usually happens, you know. Mm. Uh, very unusual that. So I just hope it's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rob. It's been great talking to you about the girl who was deaf and the prisoner in general. Great, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't run, run on too long. No, <laughs> <laughs> at all. And so, since it's a prisoner, we uh, we have to sign off by saying, Be, be seeing, seeing you. you. Be seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> Information. Information. We'd like to thank Rob for joining us. It's always good to chat. He was on um, our podcast last year for the 50th anniversary as well. So if you want to hear more from him, uh, do go back to our back catalogue and you'll find a Tally Ho podcast from uh, September 2017, where we chatted with him about his interest in the show more broadly. So thanks again to Rob for joining us. And up next, we've got our usual roundup from everything that's happening in the world of The Prisoner from Rick Davey of the Mutual website. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website, www.theunmutual.co.uk, with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Voice of the Village actress Fenella Fielding has passed away following a stroke she suffered a month ago. She was 91. Everyone connected with the Unmutual website and the Tally Ho podcast would like to offer their sincerest condolences to Fenella's family, friends and many fans. Yet more guests have been announced for the celebration of ITC event taking place at Elstree Studios on 17th of November, in which The Prisoner and Danger Man will both be included. In addition to Annette Andre, Shane Rimmer, John Huff, Georgina Moon and Prentice Hancock, star of the champions William Gaunt and popular actress Madeline Smith will also now attend and take part in exclusive Q&A sessions and signing sessions. Tickets are still available for the event, with more guests still to be announced. Available from coitmedia.co.uk. In other event news, the Eternal Village event in Seattle was a resounding success. Guests Annette Andre and myself were interviewed on stage and were joined by Nicholas Briggs, Brian Gorman and Bex and Eason from the Tally Ho podcast, who took part in live video interviews from across the pond. On the same weekend, the last Festival number no. 6 event in Port Merion was also a success. More events are forthcoming. On October the 13th and 14th, 2018, a weekend of prisoner activities will be taking place in London. Saturday the 13th of October will see the return of Leslie Glenn's popular Mind Mash event, a day of discussions, screenings and special guests, including prisoner crew members Ian Rakoff 
and Eric Myville, subject to other commitments. The following day, Sunday the 14th, we'll see the second of this year's Danger Man and the Prisoner location tours. More details can be found, as always, on the Unmutual website. Port Marion has appeared on several TV programmes recently. Check out BBC iPlayer for an edition of Bargain Hunt and Five Player for Britain by Bike, which both featured visits to the village. And finally, Where Have I Been All My Life? The memoir of prisoner actress Annette Andre is now on sale and available from Coit Media and the Unmutual website, as well as Amazon and all good bookshops. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. Once again, thank you, Rick, for bringing us all the news from the world of the prisoner. And we look forward to hearing from you again on the next Tally Ho podcast. Yes, so we are almost at the end of the prisoner. Uh, there's only two episodes left to go, so next time we will be bringing you our discussion about Once Upon a Time. Uh, it, it almost feels redundant at this point to say probably the strangest episode yet, because I think <laughs> every episode is probably the strangest episode yet of The Prisoner. It's a really remarkable episode and we're very much looking forward to discussing it. Yeah, it ties together a lot of the themes that we've seen in the show so far about fairy tales and nursery rhymes etc um but it plays a lot as an episode about the character of number six and explicitly um how much of a part of that character was in patrick mcgowan himself i think so um it's a really wonderful episode uh we love watching it and uh i really can't wait to record that one because it'd be really fun to to go into the ins and outs of uh, how we feel about it, I think. Yeah, so if you want to drop us a line, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook on our page Time for Cakes and Ale or on our website timeforcakesandale.com and please do let us know what you think of the podcast and if you do have a spare moment, please do leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use because it really helps get the word out about the pod. Yeah, so that's it from us for now. From the Tally Ho podcast, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.